Well, good afternoon. If you'd like to go ahead and take your Bibles out and open them to the, to the Old Testament, back to the book of Exodus. That's where we're going to spend a little bit of time this, this afternoon as we continue a thought that we started this morning looking at uh, sin and the, the importance for us to study sin and the importance for us to know that sin is something that is overcomable. And I hope that as we spend some time this afternoon uh, looking at this, that we will, we will take our Bibles out and we will focus intently on what He has uh, left for us, uh, what He has recorded for us, and recorded with an intent that we might grow from it. As Charles mentioned at the end of the, uh, the, end of the Scripture reading, those words, be strong and courageous, left for the Israelites, are just as applicable to us today as they were for them. And the things that we will read about this afternoon, while not describing anything that any of us have went through in our lives, they are still just as applicable as well for us today. Um, we're going to be looking at a time, a time in the, uh, the descendants of, of Isaac's life. And this is going to include a, a very obvious reference to the descendants of his life, and that of the Israelites, the, through the line uh, lineage of Jacob. Uh, that shouldn't be very hard for us to when we think of the uh, of, of Isaac, we probably think of the Israelites. When we think of his offspring, that's probably one of the kind of the ones that come to the forefront of our mind. So much of the Bible uh, is afforded to the life of the Israelites and their relationship with God. But not only are we going to spend some time this morning looking, or excuse me, this afternoon with the lineage uh, of Jacob, but we're also going to look at another set of of ancestors that come down from Isaac, another lineage through the line of Esau. And that would be the Amalekites. I want to read about these two people who were related by blood, but certainly had issues, to say the least, amongst them. And they serve as a very important purpose for us today. Uh, if you would look back in the book of Exodus, turn to chapter 17 with me. In chapter 17, the children of Israel have, have left Egypt. They're on their way to, to Canaan land. And then if we, when we start reading in verse 8 of, of Exodus chapter 17... It says, Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. And so Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy, so that they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book, and recount it in the hearing of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven." And Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is my banner. For he said, Because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. <clears throat> now, when we read that account, one question that might come to our minds is, Why would this be happening? Why would a people who are related by blood, they, they go back far enough, they trace their, their ancestors to the same lineage, why are they fighting? And also, being that it's the descendants of Esau and of Jacob, two brothers who, yes, at one point in their lives weren't fans of one another, eventually seems to have developed a peace between the two. 
And also when we think about who it is that they were fighting, Amalek and the Israelites. The Israelites were, were beginning to create a reputation for themselves. This was that, that tribe of people who came out of that great land of Egypt. And even though the Egyptians tried to get them back, they were unable, they were unsuccessful in doing that. They lost most of their, uh, of their army in the Red Sea when it collapsed on them. And in fact, we read ahead, by the time we get to the, the conquest of Canaan and by the time we get to Jericho, and, and even people like Rahab, the prostitute, they know who the Israelites are. These are the people whose, whose God fights for them. And so why would the Amalekites be attacking them? If, they knew, if, if this was a, a knowledge that was out there about this people, and there was a relationship between them and this people, why would they do that? Well, maybe to, better get, uh, to get a better understanding of this, let's flip over to Deuteronomy chapter 25. <coughs> In Deuteronomy 25, just two verses, two verses says a whole lot about the Amalekites. It says in chapter, in chapter 25, verse 17, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers at your rear, when you were tired and weary, and he did not fear God. The descendants of Amalek, that nation, was a very wicked nation. And they, they made up what would have what constituted many other nations that became known as just the, simply the Canaanites. Uh, they, they were people that lived in the land of Canaan. Um, and they would go on to become a people who worshiped the god Molech. And especially when we consider the view of language that we read in 1 Samuel chapter 15, when King Agag, who was an Amalekite, was mentioned as one who has made women childless. It was well known that the Canaanites, especially those who worshipped Molech, worshipped him by offering sacrifices of their very own children. This is the detestable act in our own eyes. We think about how awful this is, but how much more disgusting was this to God? Now, whether or not the Amalekites actually took part in that type of worship, that, that's, that's not known for certain. But what is absolutely known for certain is that Amalek did not fear the Lord. The, the, the name in which this whole tribe, this whole nation delivers its name from did not fear God. He didn't respect God in any possible way. That, that people didn't care about the Israelites, that they were the chosen people of God. And they obviously didn't like the idea of the Israelites marching towards Canaan land, so they attacked. And so I hope to use the remainder of our time this afternoon to focus on what we learn from this, this battle that we read about in Exodus. <coughs> Excuse me. Some points that I hope will help us today when we are faced with our own struggles and with our own trials and even when we are spiritually attacked in the ways that they were attacked as well. The first thing I want to notice is that the Amalekites were to the Israelites. They were comparable to the Israelites in the same way that sin and Satan is comparable to the Christian today. As we already mentioned, the Amalekites did not fear God. They weren't concerned with God's laws. They weren't concerned with God's people. And they certainly weren't concerned with His will. They were content to attack those who belonged to Him. They were content to discourage them along their way. And they were content to kill them if need be. And they were a problem that was going to have to be dealt with if the Israelites were hoping to live 
in the Canaan land. And so likewise, for us to enjoy the inheritance that we have in heaven, we have to deal with the problem of sin. That's what we talked about this morning. Satan stands opposed to God. He doesn't care about God's law. He doesn't care about God's chosen people. And he doesn't like the idea of them marching to Canaan land, marching onwards to heaven. So what does he do? He attacks them the same ways that the Amalekites attacked the Israelites. He wants to discourage us from continuing on. He wants to make us turn back to Egypt in a figurative sense, back to the slavery of sin. He wants to spiritually kill the children of God. And if we give up, if we give in, that's exactly what we can expect to happen. We mentioned Romans 6.23 this morning, so we won't go back and read it again. It said there, "...the wages of sin is death." But the Israelites, but like the Israelites, we need to understand something about this fight. And that is the Lord was fighting on their side. And the Lord is fighting on our side today. We talked about this this morning. We can be victorious. We can defeat Satan, but we must choose to fight the battle. The Israelites, they couldn't run away. If you remember what we read in Deuteronomy, they were being attacked from behind. The Amalekites were coming up behind them, so they just couldn't decide that we're just going to try to run off because they would just keep picking them off. They also couldn't pretend like nothing was happening. Maybe they'll just go away if we just keep marching towards Canaan. They would eventually pick them all off. So they had to make a choice. They needed to turn and they needed to fight. And when we are faced with Satan's attacks, and we are faced with Satan's attacks every day, we need to be ready to say, today I am going to stand with the Lord. Today I am going to fight back. And we need to remember that the Israelites, they didn't win this battle based upon their numbers, based upon their size and their ability and their, their skilled tacticians. And, and, and in fact, the means to which they gained victory is most peculiar indeed. You know, we mentioned in, in our announcements, we mentioned Scott. Scott's in a dangerous place. Scott's in, in, a, in a place that sees a lot of combat. And I imagine today that if, if there was a battle raging out somewhere near him and, and one, of the, one of his men came to him and said, listen, we're, we're, we're taking losses. There's, there's people that are being killed, but don't worry. Don't worry. We got this because I'm going to go up on that hill and I'm going to hold this stick above my head. And we've got this. I imagine Scott's going to, you get back in the line. I don't, you're not making plans anymore. That's because that's not a battle strategy. That is not how you win a skirmish or a fight. Whenever you think of, of, of a battle, you say, I want, I, want the, I want the element of surprise. I don't want them to know what's coming. Or I want it to move very quickly so they don't have a chance to react. Or we, we have to be very violent in our action. These are battle strategies. Holding a stick above my head on a mountaintop is not a battle strategy. And it makes no sense in a physical battle. But again, as I said, this was a peculiar victory for the children of Israel. And this was not a physical battle that, that was necessarily in need of winning. They were physically at war, but spiritual lessons were being learned. And the victory, or maybe uh, better said the battle, belonged to the Lord. How many times then do we look at battles that we are forced to face today? We need to understand that the battle belongs to God. The world is constantly turning away from the truth and turning to apostasy. They, they think that they are following God and more and more and more they are following their own desires. They are following what man has made and what man has come up with. And we have to be ready to stand and to face that. 
and our brethren are having sometimes different views. And, and sometimes those different views are on very important things. But a lot of times those different views are on opinions. And Satan loves to take that, to take an opinion and take two brethren and, and pit them against one another and have them just tear and claw one another to pieces. But we need to turn and we need to face that. <clears throat> How many times do we see families under attack today? We see roles that are all mixed up. We see uh, what, what should be the husband as the head of the family and the wife in submission to him out of love and respect for God and children that are obedient to their parents. And yet daily we are reminded on, on television and in, in songs on the radio and we, we see the husband portrayed as this kind of a, a bumbling fool. He does his best maybe to hold down a job and, and the wife, she, she manipulates him and maybe he thinks he's in charge, but we know who's pulling the strings. And children have this, this message conveyed to them that says, if you just don't get caught, well, you didn't do anything wrong. Our entertainment, our society, even our own government has launched all-out attacks on, our, on the family. Satan has been very effective in this, but we must remember we have to face that. That is a battle that we have been called to and we can be victorious and we can show others how to worship God properly and we can discuss our differences with our brethren without tearing one another apart and without splitting the congregation and we can make our families what God expects them to be, not by our own righteousness, but by the righteousness of God. Remembering the battle belongs to Him, but they require our efforts. We must go to battle, but we must allow God to gain the victory. And He does this in several ways. But notice one way that he helped the Israelites was by providing help for Moses. As that battle raged on, Moses' arms began to get weary. They start to get tired. He's, <coughs> he's been up here holding the staff of the Lord for some time. And I, I imagine that if any of you have held anything over your head for a while, that doesn't take very long. Your arms start to get tired. He, he's been taxed during this war. And so here comes Aaron and Hur to help. They provide support. They give him something to set upon. They hold his hands up during the fight. Now think about how that battle might have ended had they not done that. Think about how that battle might have ended when Moses' arms grew tired and he dropped and the Amalekites began to gain ground, they began to gain the victory. And what if they had said, like, like, like so many today who sometimes will have this attitude, is that, well, that's, that's not a very important job. Holding up the arms of, of, of Moses, helping him hold a stick above his head, somebody else can do that. Anybody here can do that. Anybody can hold up arms. But for me, maybe the best place for me is down here with battle, with Joshua. Not everybody can physically get in the battle. But we need to be more like these men, more like Aaron and more like her. They see something that is needed and they do it. And this can come in all sorts of, of forms today. Maybe, <coughs> maybe we come in for services and we notice, you know what? The, the song leader is not here. He's absent. And maybe we, could add, we, we should we would say to ourselves, well, why is he late? Why isn't he here on time? Doesn't he know things run smoother whenever he gets here on time? Doesn't he know that there's less confusion? And, and maybe these things are true, but what should we do? We should say, look, there's something I can do. There's some way I can help. I can hold his arms up by, by volunteering to fill in if he doesn't make it. And I'll lift him up when I see him. I'll find out what's going on. Maybe there's some way that I need to be able to encourage him or to help him. Maybe we see a widow that's in need of visiting. We see a card that needs to be sent to someone who is sick or a visitor. Instead of saying somebody needs to do this, we have the attitude that says, I can do that. I can help. 
We need to have the attitude of Aaron and her and say, I'm going to be the one to do this. Because too often we're tearing each other down. And, and maybe it's, it comes in the form of we don't agree with whatever, whoever was preaching that Sunday. I don't agree with what they were saying. And so maybe on the way home or behind their backs, I just, that was, it was a terrible job at, at, during, during the lesson today. Uh, whoever was teaching the class, I, I just have all sorts of problems with that. Or whoever led the prayer or the song service or presided over the Lord's table. And whatever act of service you want to choose, you say, you know what, I didn't like that. I didn't like the way that was done. I didn't like what they said. And it must be wrong. Or maybe it was flat out wrong. Maybe somebody gets up here. Maybe I get up here and I say something that's just absolutely wrong. And, and we immediately have this mindset that says, that's my enemy now. I have to defeat that. We need to remember that we're still brethren. We are still, as Alan put in his prayer, a family. And consider a New Testament example of something like this happening. Aquila and Priscilla, when they heard Apollo's teaching, he was flat out wrong. He was teaching things very eloquently and boldly, but he only knew the baptism of John. And they could have went away from that and said, that Apollos doesn't know what he's talking about. I can't believe how terrible a job he did. He came close, but he missed the mark. I'm going to go somewhere else. I'm going to, I'm going to go over to, to another city. I'm going to listen to somebody else preach. No, they took him aside and they taught him. They didn't go home saying horrible job. They, they went home saying, listen to how he learned. What kind, of, what kind of good is he going to do in the future? They lifted up his arms. It's no wonder we have oftentimes people who are afraid to, to step up into a role of leadership in the church. Because oftentimes today in, in our society, we spend more time tearing one another down and less time lifting one another up. We need to flip those roles. But also we would do well to remember that it involved more than just Aaron and her holding up the arms of Moses. Because Moses had to fit into that discussion somewhere. He had to let them help him as well. He had to accept the help of Aaron and her. He could have said, no, I've got this. Listen, do you forget who I am? I'm Moses. I'm the man that stood on top of the mountain with God. I'm the one that brought down the Ten Commandments. You need to remember who I am. I don't need your help. That's not the kind of attitude he had. He accepted the help of his brethren and his friend. And God has given us a family for a reason. When our brethren reach out to help, we need to accept that, to give them opportunity to help. In this battle, we may sometimes find ourselves in the front line fighting, and other times we might find ourselves in the secondary, behind our brethren, holding them up, raising their arms, helping them and coming to their aid. And we need to always be willing to take our place. And if that place is letting someone help us or that place is stepping up to someone else's help, we need to realize that sometimes we are called to go into battle and sometimes we are called to support those who are doing the fighting. Now I want to point out one last thing and then we'll wrap this lesson up. And that was the consequences of this battle that they were engaged in. What was on the line? And obviously, obviously God had commanded them to go into this battle. This wasn't just, you know, this sounds like something that's fun for us to do. They needed to, 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 to take this fight to the Amalekites. They needed to, to fight back as they were marching on to Canaan. Otherwise, it would have pitted them against God. And that's a very obvious thing that we can see, but what else? Why did God want the Amalekites to be wiped from the earth? That's a question that many people will raise sometimes. They say, how can a good God, how can a moral God, how can he possibly 
wipe out a, a people, a nation, man and woman and child. Now, we've already noticed that this was a nation that was not God-fearing in any sort of way, but many other nations at that time would have been similarly. And God did not choose to completely wipe all of them off the map. Egypt comes to mind in that aspect. They didn't, they didn't care about God. They didn't care about His people, and they certainly didn't care about His will. But they were allowed to, to continue to exist. So why, why did God decide that the Amalekites were the ones that needed to, to be eradicated? Uh, I think in thinking about this, we certainly need to remember, uh, before we even begin to question this, Isaiah 55, verses 8 through 9, tells us God's ways are not on a level of our own ways and our own thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways, and they're higher, His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And so for us to sit and go, you know, I think I can come to some sort of reasonable understanding of why God does what He does, well, that's an argument that we're, we're just not going to win. But we can notice some things about God and about these people as we move forward through history. We already mentioned 1 Samuel 15. So that's when Saul, Saul is the one that is tasked with, you go and you wipe out the Amalekites. And this is some time after they have done this to them in, 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 uh, in the book of Exodus. God has given them time to repent. And now the time is up, and God is going to call judgment on them. And so in 1 Samuel 15, he sends Saul to do that. But, but what we find there, uh, and part of the reason that he sends them is because of what they've done here next. It's because they attacked the Israelites. But what we find there, if you will remember, is he fails to completely destroy them the way God called him to do. Samuel gets there. He says, I've done it. I did it, Samuel. I wiped out the Amalekites. And Samuel says, wait a minute. I, I, hear, I hear animals. You were supposed to wipe out all the animals. And and there's even some people here and a king. What are you talking about? You wiped him out, all the Amalekites. He failed to completely destroy them. And thus, for doing so, he was rejected by God. And then that leads to, to David becoming king. And David later would kill all the Amalekites, save just a, a few hundred young men that escaped. And by the time the Jews go into captivity, many years later, when the Jews are taken into captivity, the Amalekites, they're a people that really aren't a people anymore. There's just a handful of Amalekites left here and there. And that brings us to the book of Esther. I want you to turn over there with me <clears throat> to Esther chapter 3. Remember, we're, we're considering this question. <clears throat> Why did, did God decide that the Amalekites needed to be dealt with? In Esther chapter 3, read the, the first five verses with me. It says, After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. And all the king's servants who were within the king's gates bowed and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were within the king's gates said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's commands? Now it happened when they had spoke to him daily, and he would not listen to them, that they told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay, pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath. If we are to continue reading in the book of Esther, we would see that wrath isn't just against Mordecai. It's against all of the Jews. In fact, he devises a plan to completely eradicate the Jews out of existence. But did you notice back in verse 1 who Haman was? 
the Hamadatha, uh, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. He was a direct descendant of King Agag, who Saul had let live, who had come through the lineage of Amalek. He was an Amalekite. Haman hated the Jews. And Saul had failed to follow God, to follow his words, and now the whole lineage through which the, the, the Christ was to, to come is in jeopardy. That Satan is using this as an opportunity. We read about that in, Rev, in the book of Revelation as, as the, the dragon tr- dis, uh, tried to, to devour the child. He's using this as an opportunity to snuff out the line in which God has promised the Christ would come. And what this goes to show us is one last and very important note. Sin. If you remember, the, the Amalekites represent to Israel a lot what sin represents to the Christian. Sin, when left alone, doesn't go away. In fact, oftentimes it gets worse. A lie, something that is so small but, but illustrates this point so greatly, something that starts out small yet unless repented of will continue to grow as usually we must cover one lie with another with another to keep from being found out. And as it grows and as sin grows in our life in the same way, it will multiply. We talked about this morning, it will harden our hearts. That, that emotional guilt eventually starts to go away. We don't start, start don't to, to not feel bad for what we have done and eventually the wages of sin is death. Eventually it kills us. God's desire is we don't give it that chance. We are told to put the old man to death in Colossians chapter 3 and we can't do that the way that King Saul tried to put the Amalekites to death. We can't say, oh, but these are the parts that I'm going to keep. I put all of it to death, but I kept this part and I kept this part over here. We can't do it the way Saul did. We can't pick the parts of the old man that we will, we will keep. God says completely remove it from our lives. Baptizing ourselves uh, when we are baptized with Christ, raising to live a new life. And in that new life, we must stand at the ready every day to fight Satan, to fight his efforts to drag that old man back to us. So what does all this mean to me? When I consider the Amalekites and the Israelites, what does that mean to me today? What lessons do I learn from the battle between the Israelites and the Amalekites? I learn the way that Satan often attacks. It's still the same today as it was then. He attacks in an unprovoked manner. He attacks in a cowardly way, and he preys on the weak. The things that we have are are pretty well under control. Alcohol is not a big issue for me, and and I'm not too worried about the temptations that Satan's going to put in front of me in the form of alcohol. I'm still on my guard, but I'm not too worried that that's going to be the way he attacks me. He's going to find the ways that he knows I am weak and the ways that he knows that I struggle, and that's where Satan will often attack. And God provides a way to defeat him by raising up his people. He raises up his people through baptism to give us the power of the blood of Christ to be forgiven for our sins, as we talked about this morning, to give us the power to be aided by God during this attack. He also raises us up through the offering of a line of communication with Him in prayer. We are not alone in this battle. When Satan begins to attack, we need to begin to hit our knees to pray to God, to ask for His strength. And we will grow tired. No doubt about it. Just as Moses grew tired holding that that staff above his hand. But we must remember the battle belongs to the Lord. 
The victory belongs to God, and He helps us, and He has provided us a family, a, a, a institution within His church to support us. But God wants us to eradicate sin from our lives. His ways are higher than ours. We don't have to try and fully understand them, but we need to trust them, and we need to follow them. And like Saul, we can't fail to completely remove sin from our lives. The Amalekites were to Israel what sin is to the Christian. They were a constant threat and a constant problem through many years. God's desire then would be for us today, the same as it was for them, to completely blot out all memory, not in forgetting the atrocities against God, but in remembering the destruction and defeat of sin. And both of these are possible through the power of God. This afternoon, <coughs> this afternoon, if you desire to be victorious over sin, then I would hope you would consider what we have talked about today. Consider the power of the blood of Jesus. Consider the power of the help of God. Consider the lessons that are learned from the battle with the Amalekites. If you have not yet become a child of God, if you have not yet turned away from sin to face God and confess that you believe Jesus is the living Son of God and make yourself a, a walking testament to that by submitting your life to Him as Lord in Christ, being baptized into His death. If you have not done that this morning, you are not winning the battle with sin. But that can change. You can step up to that. You can, have, you can be raised up to that. You can... Prov- have the power that God provides for that. And it starts with our walk with Jesus and it starts today. If there's some way in which we can help you this afternoon in beginning that walk, I would encourage you, please let it be known right now as you stand and as we sing.